This is Mako President Jerry Walker, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. How are we, Kevin? Doing very well. Today on the podcast, we're going to get into part two of our two-part series, New Technology Driving New Policy. And Michael, we got some feedback from part one, and it seems like we're sold on this idea of doing, you know, the general news of the week, one week, and then the next week we'll jump into a deeper policy issue and discuss that and just rotate those off and on. It seems like people seem to, to be on board with that. Yeah, I think so. That's, and that's, that's helpful for us. I think we're still, we're still interested in, in, you know, feedback from our listeners, and, and we're happy that we've got, you know, hundreds of people listening to the pod. That's great. But I think you know, at this point, we want to try and build it around your interests and what we think fits. And covering policy stuff, I mean, you can do a weekly news wrap-up, and that's, that's fine. That's the kind of thing we're trying to do with the blog on, on our website, uh, the Conduit Street blog that, that Mako puts out, is generally trying to keep up with, with news of the day and so forth. We've been doing some of that on the podcast as well, but the thing that you can miss is the bigger picture issue where there's not necessarily a huge development in, in, in a particular day or in a particular week. Right. So, so I, I like this idea of going back and forth. We'll catch up on, on, you know, what's happening. You know, we'll still have some election issues and fallout to be talking about probably next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, who knows what else is in the headlines. I think it's, it's worth doing that kind of roundup every so often, but this week talking about some issues that, you know, from a Maryland policy perspective, everything we're talking about today really have both a past and a future. They're, these things are all sort of still in the oven. Yeah, absolutely relevant. So in part one, we discussed ride-sharing, peer-to-peer, property rentals, drones, GPS and navigation software, and autonomous vehicles. So if you haven't listened to part one, I suggest that you do so. It is on our blog. You can also find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast. We also ask that you give us a follow there, subscribe if you haven't already. In part two today, we are going to get into body-worn cameras, solar energy sighting, small cell wireless facilities, and next generation 911. And Michael, speaking of tech, if you want more great tech, if you're interested in tech, at our summer conference that's coming up on August 15th, we have the Mako Tech Expo. That's going to be three tech-focused sessions. We'll have cybersecurity, small cells, and biotech, 50 vendors, one day only. That's Wednesday, August 15th. So you better get down to Ocean City on Wednesday if you're interested in tech, and I suppose you might be if you're listening to this podcast. Yeah, I, th- I think I think um, Wednesday has really taken off the last couple of years as we've tried to add a focus on that day. And, you know, people like me who are long timers, you know, with and around Mako, a lot of people used to think of Wednesday as the day for there's a golf tournament and there's some light programming, but that's a pretty easy day to make my travel day. If I'm not going to be golfing, I'll just sort of drive down and, and check in that afternoon or whatever. 
Um, if you still have that mentality, you're going to be missing an awful lot of really good content. And the technology theme has brought it together a great deal. We're working with the Maryland Technology Council, and, and you know, they've they've helped guide us on topics that are relevant and bring us some pub, you know, some private sector players to mix in with the you know the folks who are in and around county government. But uh, the content looks excellent again this year. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it too. I am too, and the summer conference in general is looking fantastic. One more housekeeping issue here. The Conduit Street podcast will be recording a live episode at our summer conference. We have a very special guest. Congressman Dutch Ruppersberger will join us. Don't miss that session. We'll also talk about how to podcast, the benefits of podcasting. That's going to be held on Friday, August 17th from 2.15 to 3.15. So if you're interested in podcasting and you want to hear from Congressman Ruppersberger, which is always good, make sure to join us for that session. Yeah, so, I mean, kind of, we hope this is a little bit something, you know, a little bit different than the usual offering, but as one of our breakout sessions, we're going to do a live podcast. We'll have Dutch there. You know, I'm sorry, I got, you know, licensed to use just the uh, just the nickname, but yeah. uh, when, yeah. when, when he was a county executive and president of MACO, I was working here, and we actually... Um, we had some big tangles during his year as president talking about uh, electricity issues. So he'll, he'll remember that, and we'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah, certainly a lot to talk about. So that'll be fun. Looking forward to doing that. So, Michael, let's jump right in here to part two of our two-part series on new technology driving new policy. Let's start with body-worn cameras. So what we're talking about here are cameras that are worn by police and other local government employees. These are not only worn by humans, they also could be worn by drones or robots, and they follow the activities of these first responders and other government employees. And unlike dash cam-mounted video, which we've had for a while in police cars, body cameras have the potential to go everywhere and see everything. Right? Yeah. This is a point of view right. that we haven't seen before. And I think you know we've been going out of our way, and you just did, to, to emphasize people talk about these as like police cameras or right. police body cams and so forth. And, and without a doubt, that's the most high profile use of this technology right now right. is law enforcement officers, whether it's a sheriff's deputy or a police officer or whomever, um, you know, someone in law enforcement having a camera for, to, to record their interactions and so forth. That's the first step of this. But I think everybody in the public sector sees that this is going to develop uh, yes. that that as as the public impression that having these sort of the, these interactions and and these conditions be recorded is a good thing this is going to be more and more people it's going to go to fire and rescue it's going to go to housing inspectors and permit officers and just i mean all sorts of things i i mean as a, as a sidelight just the other day uh, there was a delivery a delivery truck came to my house and dropped off a package on the front steps. And I, I happened to be walking up to the house as she was doing it, but she's taking a picture mm-hmm. to demonstrate that she had delivered, you know, delivered the package and it was verified to be on my front steps. Right. So, I mean, this, this idea of documenting what's happened, you know, in real time or in some verifiable way, you know, signing for a package is, is old school. Taking a photograph to show that it's been delivered is new school. Extend that mentality to public sector employees, especially people who are going into homes, who are, you know, talking with people who are, you know, raising difficulties mm-hmm. or, you know, if you're in a rescue situation, all those sort of things. I, I mean, 
I think I think the trend is moving in that direction. This is going to be a bigger and bigger thing. And and the idea here is it, it, that it works for both sides, right? So if you are in public safety, you know, there's the issue of transparency and accountability. The public gets that with a body-worn camera, but also from the public safety perspective or other government employees who may be wearing this technology, you're getting this, the security of knowing that if they make an allegation against you, you can pull up that footage and say, actually, that didn't happen. It's mm-hmm. all on camera. So really, the right. idea is strong. Mm-hmm. You get you get buy-in from both sides here. But there are some issues that we deal with as local governments and that the state and that other states across the country are dealing with in terms of body cameras, what to do with them, how to store the video, and who should have access to that video. All right. So that, that's where we are, is this technology is here. It's definitely coming further. So there are going to be more and more places that decide to pick them up, start using them, and get them out on their officers and getting out on on other employees and so forth. So this is definitely happening. It's not a question of whether we're going to invite this technology in. I think it's it's on its way. That's a one-way street. But the policy questions, if the framework for what we want to talk about on, on this pod is this technology is driving policy, then, I mean, you just sort of open the door to the kind of things that Maryland and everybody mm-hmm. is dealing with. We're not on an island here. Um, you know, I mean, Maryland and, and you know, Washington State and California and maybe even Guam, everybody's, everybody's looking at how to deal with this kind of stuff. This technology is coming. It's going to be popular. So how do you deal with, with you know, management of it and use of it? So let's talk about the first issue here. We're going to try and go through this sequentially. The first issue that I hear a lot is, you know, this technology is going to show scenes that have never before been subject to public scrutiny. We're talking about the insides of private homes and businesses and the potential for abuse of this video, including, you know, posting it on the Internet is extremely high. We all know about cyberbullying. And now, Michael, if you were my neighbor and I knew the police were at your house yesterday, I wanted to go in and get that footage. And I knew that you'd be in a compromising situation or, you know, I wanted to see the inside of your house and post it on the Internet. You know, if there aren't protections in place, I could walk down and get that video and then post it online and publicly shame you if that's what I wanted to do. So there has to be a balance here, right? Because we can't allow all of the sensitive footage to just get out to the public because, again, the potential for abuse is very, very high. So so what this traces to is public agencies are subject to you know, what we broadly refer to as sunshine laws. And in Maryland, the, the one that is most relevant is the Public Information Act. It's, right. it's the state equivalent of the Freedom of Information Act at the federal level. FOIA is a more common acronym. Here it's the Public Information Act or Maryland PIA. And so that's the law that basically says when the government has a document, a piece of paper or a file or, you know, the paperwork from you know, whatever, some some planning and zoning proceedings, um, all those things are collected, they're maintained somewhere as a document, but it's really the government is just the custodian on behalf of the citizens. And if a citizen walks in the door and says, I want to see all the filings relative to that new shopping mall that just got built down the road from me, people are entitled to see that. The PIA update several years ago, that, that's focused more on static records like documents, spreadsheets, and databases, right? This right. is not focused on digital storage. Right. So we've got, we've got lots of laws that have been on the books for decades, uh, written 
basically thinking about file folders. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now, as a practical matter, if a police department or some other public entity puts out, puts out uh, you know, cameras on employees, start gathering footage, and they're being stored on a server somewhere, for all intents and purposes, those are public documents. Right. And they're treated by these laws that are written for pieces of paper. So, I mean, everybody knows the idea of there are some things you don't share. Like like um, if you have a public employee who has a health condition and you note that in a personnel file, that is not public. Right. So the laws are written wisely in that regard that there's a list of things that you don't share with the public. In general, documents are to be shared with the public, but there are some exceptions where you don't. And you know, we've had 30 or 40 years of time to sort out where that those lines should be drawn and what sort of things should and should not be public. And you know, we basically do a good job there. But this is a new frontier, the idea of eight hours of footage for every officer for every day all the time. Um, this is – and the nature of what's on that footage, like you said, this idea of – uh, you know, talking about a police officer who goes to investigate something in a person's home. Now suddenly we've got 35 minutes of footage inside a person's house and interviewing with witnesses and interviewing with victims and things of that nature. All that stuff's on, on tape. And do we have clear authority to say, wait, this, this, this isn't or shouldn't be public? Now, we should mention that the state knew this was coming. There was a commission that looked at body cameras and they developed best practices and standards. You know, they set up training through the police and uh, correctional commission. But when it comes to what to do with this footage and what should be released, they punted on that issue. Right. And so this has become a problem for local governments in terms of what can we release? What should we release? uh, What is considered to be sensitive? And we have had legislation for the past few years to try and deal with this issue, Michael, Unfortunately, it has not been successful, but let's talk a little bit about how we can address issues of what we should be releasing, what is too sensitive, what shouldn't be out there, and a clear-cut, defined model for local governments to follow in Maryland. Yeah, I think I think that's, that's the elusive issue, is to try and find the right model that everybody can be comfortable with. And this really has to come from the General Assembly. Um, it's not it's not a subject where the Baltimore County police who have been using body cameras for some time can just come up with their own independent policy mm-hmm. and say, we're going to release A, B, and C, but not X, Y, and Z. They don't have the ability to do that because state law more or less says everything's public except things on this short list. So unless you can get the General Assembly on board saying certain types of footage should be redacted or withheld, um, then you know, then it, it ends up being presumed to be public. And part of the difficulty here is, I, I, I'm not I'm not wild about making policy arguments based on bureaucracy and staff time, but that's a real issue here. To hire an attorney to go through a 20-page document and magic marker out the sensitive items where a person's name is referenced or other things that shouldn't be shared, you know, that can be a two-hour exercise. And that, you know, that, that, that takes some time, it takes some money, but it's not necessarily the end of the world. But to hire somebody to go through, like that's that past example, 35 minutes of footage 
of the camera while it was inside a person's house to take out what, you know, you're going to take out the face of the people the officer's talking to. What if there's, you know, what if there's a few marijuana plants in the corner of one of the rooms in that house? Or mm-hmm. what if, you know, or, or paraphernalia or whatever else might be around in the house? Or what, what, if, what if we just happen to see, you know, they have a personal safe, and it's it's in the side of the wall, or really nice art on the wall. Right, yeah, right. I mean, like, you know, I mean, the the list of things that could make you worried. Even just like, what rooms do the kids stay in, and what windows could a person with bad intent like try to peek into? I mean, all that stuff is the sort of thing that would be incidentally captured on this footage. And at what point do you have do, do you have or want a law that says, listen? Now, if you've got something important, let's share it with who needs it. But maybe this kind of stuff shouldn't be on that list of public documents. Right. So I think everyone can agree that victim protections is number one in in the area that should not be disclosed to the public. So I think what we've been trying to push, and it's not just MAKO. We had a number of stakeholders that were on board here. We want to prohibit the release of video that's showing victims of domestic violence, sexual crimes, or abuse, unless that footage is requested by the person, the victim, right? Right, So if they want to see it, of course, they should have access, but we don't want it ending up on the local news at 6 o'clock. And, I mean, the thing that gets tricky with this as a matter of policy is that when you – we've been trying to talk about what should the policy be for sharing something with the whole world. Anybody who walks in the door can ask for a public document and get a copy. You don't have to say, hey, I'm with a newspaper or I happen to live next door. You just say, I want it because it's public Mm -hmm. and that's it. So what we've been trying to say with the legislation that's been in, in the General Assembly for the last few years has been let's let's try and let's try and limit the effect to things where there's not an ongoing investigation where we're, where it's not the the affected person the person who's in the video or the subject of the video we're just talking about the random walk in the door I want to see it just because I'm interested right we're not talking about any incident that could raise public concern. So anything like, you know, a police officer issuing a traffic citation, conducting a stop and frisk, making an arrest, causing injury or death to a person, even the allegation, that all could still be subject to public disclosure. Right. And and I mean, you know, to put a somewhat finer point on it, what what has made this a challenging debate is it seems like every month or two, there's another somewhere in the country. There's another video that pops up related to a police-involved shooting someplace, and understandably, everybody's very sensitive about that. You don't want to pass a law that would let bad cops or bad police departments hide behind, you know, hide evidence that would, you know, that would, you know, sort of suggest they did something wrong. Right. So you you don't want to say, let's bury the footage if a cop shoots somebody in the back. Because that's the whole point right. of right. body cameras, right? right. Is well, that right. Yeah. When, 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 a, when a terrible thing happens or when a routine thing happens, let's go back to the tape and find out rather than, you know, he said, he said, let's actually go to the tape and find out who was saying what and when did things fall apart. Anyway, so, but that's what makes this tough, right? Mm-hmm. Is that as as we're trying to make the case and our county attorneys, the people who are managing public documents and so forth are earnestly testifying saying, 
I have a nightmare trying to figure out how to redact hours and hours and hours of footage. If someone walks in the door and says they want it all, they're talking about the boring stuff. There's no investigation. There's no allegation or complaint. It's just someone walked in the door and says, I want to do some snooping around. I kind of want to do a fishing expedition and see what the cops are up to. Mm-hmm. The idea of going through tons of footage to to make it something you could release under current law is a nightmare proposition. But even as we're earnestly talking about that circumstance, you can't help but hear, but what does this mean if a cop shoots a kid, right? And that's, what, that's, that's a substantial part of what has made this so challenging to get a bill passed is – you know, how, what what are you letting through this you know this change in law or loophole or whatever you want to call it? Now we talked about you know the instances where you know we see it on the news all the time. There's a police involved shooting, but on the other side of that too, I think what we'd like to make clear is that we don't want any video released that directly depicts the death of a law enforcement officer, a first responder, or other government employee that occurred in the performance of their duties. We don't want their family having to see this on the news or it being on social media. So that's another sensitive area. It it cuts both sides here. Right. So, so I mean, the, the legal nuances of how this law works are a little tricky, and that's part of what has made this a challenge for the legislature. And, again, I'll say this is not something that Maryland is alone in having trouble with. There are places across the country who are having the same kind of debate. Um, I mean, one of the problems, though, of being stuck in limbo, which I think is a fair depiction of where we are right now, is you have places in Maryland we know for a fact that have said, until we know what to do with this footage, we're unwilling to buy the cameras and put them out there because we're we're terrified that someone will come in the door, ask for all the footage, and we'll be stuck hiring outside attorneys to spend three weeks of time going through and, you know, editing and redacting stuff from this footage so we can legally comply with a request. And maybe we don't even get paid for that. So, you know, we're out, we're on the hook for $150,000 to, to let somebody have a bunch of footage uh, for, with, without even anything in mind. They're not saying I want to see this or I want to see that. They just want to see everything. Right. So by, you know, not making things clear by being in limbo, we're actually disincentivizing folks to go out and get this technology that everybody, I think, agrees is probably a good idea on both sides for, again, transparency and accountability, and then also for protecting police or other governmental employees that are out there interacting with the public every day. So so this is a a, a to-be-determined where this is going to head as a matter of policy. I think, by and large, we haven't been hearing problems from agencies who are using cameras within Maryland that they're not you know that they're not using them correctly that they're not following the the, the sort of best practices and so forth you know the big threshold questions about you know when are when do the officer have the camera on or when do you turn it off other things like that i mean by and large we think the training stuff is going well the question is what do you do with the footage what's public and how do you sort that stuff out so not resolved yet maybe this coming year could be the setting for that um tough to say Right. So looking to take the next step, we will see what happens there. Stay tuned. Michael, let's get into solar facility siting. So energy facility siting is based on decades old law, right, that envisions small and relatively compact facilities like coal, oil, nuclear plants as your primary energy generators. Increasingly, though, energy generation is becoming more dispersed as technologies like solar, wind, 
biomass, gasification are now poised to be the primary energy generators. Mm-hmm. You know, these technologies, they bring many advantages, but they also have some drawbacks, including a need for significant amounts of open space. And that is where this is what causes problems, I think, for local governments in Maryland, and, and not just in rural areas, but also in urban areas. There is this high demand for a lot of space to put up solar or wind farms. And mm-hmm. we understand a lot of people love this technology. Clean energy generation is a big deal, but it does create a lot of pressure for land, which quite frankly is limited in Maryland in, in terms of what we can provide these large swaths of land to put up these energy generating facilities. So this is this follows the same model that we've been talking about as you know a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about things like ride sharing. You have laws written for taxis, now, how do you make those laws adapt to the new model, which is instead of a registered taxi with a medallion driver and so forth, now you just have a citizen with you know, a car that's passing inspection working for a ride-sharing service. All right, so basically the same, same situation here. We've got laws on the books basically written with the assumption that power comes from power plants. Mm-hmm. We, you build a giant power plant. And with the inherent understanding that power plants are not the best neighbors, they can be noisy, they can vibrate, they can make smoke and so forth. So communities are not wild about having a power plant sited next to their school or whatever. So the state decades ago basically stepped in and said, when it comes to siting power plants, this is an area where community control by way of local zoning and that sort of process, we we need to step in and basically override community control because nobody's going to want a facility in their backyard. Right. That's, I mean... So we are the we are the community control people, right? We 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 see the elected officials in county government and municipal government as that's the vehicle for communities to decide how do they look, how do they develop and grow, and what do you want where? I mean, that's what planning and zoning is all about, and that's a centerpiece issue for local government. But this was one exception where I think it generally made some sense to say you need to have some power generation infrastructure within the state. You need to have it around for the security of the grid. And so, okay, fine, we kind of hold our nose and we live with a law that says the state can more or less say we need a power plant. It's going to be sited here. And the, the you know we'll take input from the local community, but ultimately it's going to be a call not from that hometown, but by the state. So, Michael, now that we have these new technologies that are able to generate energy, on the on the opposite side of the coin here, there's also a lot of people who push for land preservation. Right, we have sensitive lands, we have historical lands, mm-hmm. and that needs to be accounted for as well. But if you're going to say as the state or the federal government that we want to shift to clean energy, you have to have the land to do it. Mm -hmm. MECO had an initiative last year uh, in which we did address this issue and we we got some clarity on how exactly these these facilities should be sited, what should be considered in the siting of these facilities and the local input, but how can we make sure that we're living up to our obligations for land preservation and preserving the you know the look and feel of our communities while right. also shifting to alternative energy. Yeah, and and so that I mean that frames I think the what what we think is the interesting sort of local government policy question is control over land use and things like planning and zoning and limitations on how you use land and so forth 
that's always a tension between the state and local governments, and we always stand up for we want that community-level control. So, I mean, that's what we believe in as a general matter. So this challenges that notion. And, I mean, you've talked about, like, historic preservation and, and sort of, you know, curtailing development through land preservation and easements and other things like that. But, I mean, there's another piece of this, which is, even more bread and butter, it's just like the look and feel of an agricultural area. Right. And I, I don't know how you put a price tag on that or how do you say, you know, we value this as an agricultural area. But, I mean, most counties in Maryland have substantial parts of their, you know, their geography just zoned as ag. And, you know, you treat it different for tax purposes, but the amount of growth that's allowed is very limited. We see these things, you know, that are in ag reserves where you can have just the family homestead on a big plot of, of agricultural land and other things like that. I mean, that is that is a, a sort of a bedrock idea in the way we use land. But you you drive across the eastern shore or any relatively flat part of Maryland these days and compared to 10 years ago, there's an awful lot of places that used to be soybeans, that used to be cornfields, and now it's 75 acres of solar panels. Right. I mean, we were in Western Maryland yeah. last week and we saw the windmills the wind up farm, there, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the, you know, this is, and this is the common issue, right? Let's say I'm a farmer, I have a lot of land, I'm zoned in ag, but now I want to put up solar and I still consider this to be farming. This is a solar farm. This is a farming of energy. So, that's one of the big challenges, right, is that these farmers, it's their land, and this could be lucrative for them to to in, install this solar energy or wind or whatever it may be. But how, you know, that's the question. How do you deal with that? Right. And, you know, do you have to rezone? Are, are they right. subject to different tax breaks? Whatever the issue is, but that's a big problem. Right. And this is, I mean, what this introduces a whole flavor of public policy around property rights mm-hmm. where... There is a tension between, I mean, you know, you can be candid. There's a, there's a natural tension that exists between the, the government acting on behalf of the community that says we want to curtail certain kinds of development and certain kinds of things. We want commercial stuff here. We want residential stuff there and just ag over here. And that's the nature of public planning. Um, to some degree, that is an imposition on the private property owner's ability to make the most of her property. So, I mean, there's there's always been a policy tension like that, but this gets a little bit deeper because how do you characterize passive solar generation? Mm-hmm. Um, you're not talking, you know, the, the kinds of things where you say, well, we don't want to have we don't want to have a gas station here in this agricultural area because we don't want to have the traffic. We don't want to have trucks pulling up every week and stuff like that. And I mean, it doesn't fit the look. Right. So, so okay, that makes sense. And I mean, most people buy into the general idea that, okay, you can zone this area and say we don't want a gas station on that corner. Maybe, you know, maybe the, the little farm stand is okay, but not the full-scale commercial gas station. Well, what about, you know, what about 20 acres or 200 acres of solar panels that are how many feet from the roadway or whatever? You know, does does that violate the principle that this is an agricultural area? And if you allow it in an area that's principally agricultural, does that mean you've now changed the nature of that zone? If I'm, if I'm the, the one farmer... 
and I wanted that gas station and I'm stuck between two other farms that have gone solar, do I get to now go down to my planning office and say, I'm filing under the change or mistake rule. There's mm-hmm. been a change. Right. I used to be ag, but I look to my left and I see sil- you know, I see see these big pa- panels on the left and big panels on the right. Um, this Doesn't is, look like ag to me. Yeah, this is not. This is no longer a farming area, and I should be able to build my gas station. Do we do we have the right to say no? This is no. This is not a commercial area. It's agriculture. <laughs> That's the big right. question, and yeah. I think just like with body cameras, I think we we just want some clarity. We want a universal policy, and we did make some headway. You know, the Public Service Commission, who is responsible for reviewing these applications for the solar development and other energy development, we got a bill passed that essentially says, look, if they're going to review these plans, number one, they need to consider the consistency with the county's comprehensive plan, right? So if you're putting, you know, big solar development in an area where it really doesn't fit or where people don't want it, you know, you have to consider that. Number two, they need to consider the efforts of the local governments. We need to come to the table, too and try to work with these developers and resolve any issues that we may have. So if they look at that and they say, look, this doesn't really work with the comp plan. The county hasn't said you can't put solar anywhere. We can't do that. But also the county has shown up and they've tried to resolve these issues, but they just can't do it. That's now probably going to factor into their decision on whether or not to issue a license essentially to install solar and generate that energy at any specific location. Right. So that, that, I mean, that system, the, the, the Maryland law as of the 2017 legislative sessions, this has been on the books for a year or so mm-hmm. um, is first of all, it's got some puts and takes I mean, the way a County earns the right to require consideration by the state public service commission is by having a special process. Right. So we can't say, no, you can't put solar anywhere here. Right. But we, we, you know, if you go through and you map out your County and you say, these are the good places and these are the bad places for specific reasons, then you're entitled to present that to the public service commission. They have to consider it and they have to think about that consistency. So that's a step. We think that's a step in the right direction, but I mean, to be fair, we got the bill passed and the solar industry players who are around the table signed off on that as something of a deal. But I think probably the best way to phrase that is it's more of a ceasefire than, a, than an absolute truce. So maybe it'll hold and maybe it turns out that's the middle ground that's going to get us through the next 10 years of what might be boom time for solar. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe we're going to end up revisiting this. And if the push in Maryland continues to raise the portfolio standards and to basically further prop up the buyer's market for alternative energy, for wind and solar. So that means that they'd be wanting more clean energy to be made in Maryland and for Maryland to actually use that clean energy so to increase the percentage of energy that has to come from those facilities. So if that's the direction Maryland heads, and we saw saw a pretty big effort on this front that didn't end up in bills being passed, but it got on a lot of people's, you know, a lot of tongues were wagging over this during the legislative session of 18, um, if, if, if we move in that direction, it might renew this fight over where are we going to place this stuff? Cause you may have companies saying we simply don't have enough good places to put the solar. We need to start putting it in not so good places and do it against the will of the community. Right. Because if that's the standard, you got to put it somewhere. Right. 
All right, so we've talked about body cameras. We've talked about solar energy. We're going to go ahead and take a break. After the break, we will talk about small cell wireless facilities and also next generation 911, how both of those new and emerging technologies are influencing policy. All that and more after the break. Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's get into small cell wireless facility siting. So telecommunications stuff, another area where technology mm-hmm. is moving really fast. Okay, so we've all seen the giant cell phone towers, right? They're up on hills. They service a big area, and that's worked for a long time. However, we've seen data traffic soar last year about 40% higher than it was in 2010, with new services rolling out every day, you know, that data usage is expected to keep surging forward. And to satisfy it, the telecom companies have started to install thousands of small cell antennas that are being deployed on electric poles, street lights, buildings, or standalone poles, with potentially hundreds or thousands of more to come. And the idea here, Michael, is to serve a small area, right? So this is mostly in an urban setting. We have, you know, data demands that are very, very high in specific areas. So instead of relying on that giant cell phone tower that might be a mile away, we'll put a bunch of these small cell phone towers and we'll put them in areas where we need a bunch of this service and they'll be on your street poles, they'll be on the traffic lights, wherever they may be. But the idea here is to cluster them instead of having a giant pole a mile away. Right. So, I mean, this is you have to see this as sort of the next big wave for wireless telecom for, you know, we call them cell phones. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think that that term has kind of outlived its usefulness, but most of us still use the word cell phone devices. Right? Right? Yes. Right. So, anyway, anyway, um, but uh, for, for wireless phones, it's obviously it's the growing part of telecommunications. Uh, we know that, you know, my family doesn't have a landline anymore. I think the demographics suggest that's the continuing trend. Um, you know, a lot of people get the free landline thrown in with their, their telecom package from a cable company or something like that, and some of them don't even activate they it. They don't even know their phone number. Right. So, I mean, it's just... It's just I don't. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just one of those things that has changed with technology. I, I'm old enough to remember that, you know, competition for long-distance calling was a really big thing. Different companies offering you service for long-distance calls and so forth. And now the idea of paying for a call from one part of the country to another... People you know, shake their heads. Say, what, are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, I remember walking around with like calling cards, right? right? right, you, right when exactly. I went to summer camp, you, mm-hmm. your, your parents would give you yeah. a calling card and yep. you'd have a certain amount of minutes. And right, that's right. like crazy to right. think about now, right? right? Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so, so enough of me demonstrating my age. But so, I mean, this technology is, is everywhere. And it's another classic case of 
changes in technology are going to force changes in policy. And we wanted to talk about this in segment two because it's another one that is connected to the business of government. And in particular, um, I think the connection here is, again, through land use and sort of the that regulation that is local government's responsibility, um, putting up a facility like this, whether it's you know, whether it's a 250-foot tower or whether it's just, uh, you know, a, an item that goes on top of a telephone pole or on top of a street light or on top of a building, e- either way, there, there's a local process for some input, for some guidance on where, what, how, and, and that sort of thing. How do you get to use the public rights of way? All that sort of stuff is a public responsibility acting on behalf of the residents of the community who have a stake in what the neighborhood looks like, what facilities are installed, where, and all those sorts of questions. And public safety, right? I mean, you have to consider that, too, as a local government. That's your primary responsibility is protecting the public. And if you have a situation where, you know, some of these small cell facilities might be the size of a refrigerator box hanging off of a pole, you could see how maybe a neighborhood wouldn't feel comfortable walking down the sidewalk and having that hanging over them. So, but if I'm a wireless provider, Michael, and I'm saying, hey, 5G is is coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming down the line. And we need to be able to install these facilities all over the place. And we don't want to have to deal with local governments that have different rules and regulations. We want to set policy. We want to be able to do this stuff because we need to, because this is what people want. They want faster phones. They want more data. And in order to provide that to them, we need to have carte blanche to go wherever we need to go to give you this technology. You're going to want it. Your citizens and your residents want it. We need to have that flexibility. We don't need you getting in the way and dealing with all these different zoning procedures. So that's their argument. And you, as a local government, what is our position here? And we've talked about we need to protect the look and feel of communities, public safety. There's a procedure for zoning. There's a procedure for walking in the door and saying, hey, I want to put this on a pole and we have a procedure for making that happen. But this is a national push. There's a lot of pressure here. Mm-hmm. So so what is our argument here to say, slow it down? Well, I think, I think there's a couple things that work, and both of them fit right back into this mold of we have technology that is creating more square pegs that do not fit into the round holes that we've created in the past decades based on old technology. So... I mean, we have. This is going to sound a lot like the maybe the you know the the uh, the Uber debate you know from from uh, the last time we talked about these issues. But we have a bunch of laws that are written mostly about regulated utilities, and we think of the water company and the the, the electricity delivery company. We no longer buy our electricity from a regulated company, but as far as it doesn't make sense to have nine different companies have wires come to your house. So we have one and they have a regulated oversight. Well, those companies, we understand how to have a relationship with a regulated utility or with a franchised cable company who has an agreement of they're going to provide this kind of service in a service area and they negotiate that locally. We understand how to do that business, but now you have for-profit, unregulated, competitive wireless companies who are making very similar claims. We need access to public rights of way. We need to use the local infrastructure. And we, you know, we, we, we want to be able to do this in a way that's 
unfettered and clean and quick and so forth. And I mean, that's, that's their position. It's absolutely their, their right to argue for that, Mm -hmm. but it's just, I, I don't like saying it's different because it's different, but the idea of a regulated company getting special entitlements because they've agreed to be the one player to take on a public responsibility is different from a company who's thinking just about the quarterly earnings report for their shareholders. Right. So with the franchise agreement, maybe, you know, you, you make that agreement with a cable company and you say, hey, that's fine. You can use the public rights of way, but we want you to serve these areas, too. You're not just going to serve the highly populated areas, but we right. also want you to get out to our maybe our rural areas mm-hmm. and they need service, too. So, right. you know, that's the agreement. There's an exchange. And so in exchange for the use of public rights of way, the company agrees we're going to serve this particular geography. We're going to provide public access channels for educational programming or civic programming, all these sorts of things that are very familiar with telecommunication as it existed 20 years ago, where we knew what cable was and we knew what telephone was. And we, you know, that's that's the other thing. Now the lines have been blurred with all these different facets of telecommunication and the way we regulate it, oversee it tax it and treat it has just become really difficult to sort out. So the wireless players right now want to expand their footprint um, with smaller, you know, smaller toes, but, but they want to, you know, they want to have these, these smaller, smaller facilities. And their argument is we shouldn't have to go through the same kind of rigor that we used to when we put up the big 200 foot tower. And that's fundamentally, that's really what this question is about is that, yeah, okay, there was a public right to have some say in where the big towers go because it might interfere with your police radios or, you know, there's a safety, what if a tower falls down, that sort of thing. But, oh, come on, these are just pizza boxes. We're going to just hang them on your light poles. It'll be fine. You don't really need to have any say in that. Okay, now, the, now the, you know, the gauntlet has been, has been dropped as far as this tension between the company that wants to provide service that we all want. I mean, I'm a wireless user and I want, you know, I want maximum bars and better service in the places where I spend my time. Nobody wants to see buffering. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not like this, it's not like they're without an argument that the service is going to be great for citizens and economic development, but how do you make that work with communities that look a certain way and function a certain way? We have to think about public safety. We have to think about, you know, the, the environment, that we're building in and that we're living in, that's our job in this. So, um, you know, where do we head from here? It, that's the tension to, to try and sort out. Um, one way to go about this is to make this a statewide rule. And the industry is interested in saying, let's not have Anne Arundel County or the city of Annapolis be the decision maker here. Let's have the decision maker be the state of Maryland through one law here's the boilerplate and this is now the system and you know here's when you have to give a license so on and so forth sort of like airbnb from episode 1 is like we want a statewide law we want this to be uniform across the state we don't want to deal with a bunch of different you know local taxes let's do it one way we'll deal with the state we don't want to deal with the locals so just just to have a uniform policy across the state and you can understand their argument but we talked about franchise agreements and absent an agreement like that michael we know there are areas of this state that don't have access to broadband. They're already behind. And this small cell technology will bring with it a massive investment. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And that sounds great. I think what we don't want to see happen, though, too, is that 
these small cells are going to be deployed in areas where there are high populations, mostly urban settings where the demand is very high. They may not be useful in our rural areas who are already behind. They already don't have broadband access. Mm -hmm. So with a franchise agreement, you could say potentially, okay, we'll let you do this, but we also want you to make sure that our people who don't have broadband, we want you to bring them up and get them on par with everybody else. So make some of that investment there, and then you can you know, install these small cells. But we don't have that capability. So I think what we're looking to do is make sure that our people in our, our rural settings don't get further behind the eight ball, and that if this massive investment comes into Maryland, that we are investing in bringing those folks up to par with everyone else in terms of broadband access. Yeah, I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know what the reasonable goal is for parity and service with compact, highly developed areas and the reverse, the, you know, the disparate rural areas. I don't know what, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be the exact same level of service and sure, outcome, sure. but I, I think, I think you got to pass a smell test, yeah. right? The idea that the kids in the rural part of the state need to be able to access their online assignment that's been handed out through school or a company needs to be able to locate anywhere in the state and at least have the ability to connect and maintain a website and do online work and so forth. I mean, maybe not the, you know, the the, the high speed, high speed, but at least, you know, for economic development, for education, you need to have some sort of broadband access. You just need it. Right. So it's, I mean, it's a fundamental service um, at this point. And, And so, so where we're left with this is that two part issue is that this is a desirable development in technology that we want to see deployed across the state. We want to see the improved service for all those reasons, but you have the two part question of how do you fit it within communities in a way where people don't choke and turn against the development itself. And I think second is, you know, how do we try and steer this so that we can make some gains in places that it's been tough to do so. And if, if desperately wanting further further service in compact areas is the way to get some of the companies to give a bit get more on the rural relatively underserved areas then the state may be the player to do that mm-hmm. rather than you know the city of Rockville or Montgomery County right Absolutely. So again, this one is unresolved, much to come. Uh, This will be an issue moving forward. I expect it to be an issue in the 2019 legislative session and possibly beyond. And in just about every state too. We've been, we've been uh, talking with our peers from, from other jurisdictions and this debate is a national debate being held in state houses all across the country. So Michael, this is a perfect transition into our next topic, Next Generation 911. This both has to do with signal capacity and service area, and we're talking about a lot of the same stuff here, but when we're talking about 911, nobody wants to have to call 911, right? right. I mean, 911 <laughs> though is a local function and we know that Maryland residents demand and expect 911 emergency service to be reliable and efficient. So in order to make that happen, in order to keep up with this increasingly complex public safety function, we need next-generation technology. The federal government has mandated that everyone get to this next-generation 911. Next-generation 911 will improve wireless caller location. It will accommodate incoming text and video, multimedia, and also allow us to manage crisis-driven 
uh, call overflow. So, Michael, if there was a car accident next to your 911 center here and you're flooded with calls from everyone calling about the same accident, you may be able to then transfer those calls to another jurisdiction so that the person who has an emergency who's maybe not in that general area where the accident is, is still able to get through to 911, right. and that's a big problem. Yeah, and I mean, what lies in the background of all this is just what we were talking about a moment ago, the the shift in telecommunications toward wireless callers is what's driving the need for what we're calling next-gen 911. I mean, it was, it was a while ago that Maryland made the investment statewide to get all of our cars, all of our call centers, the ability to do an estimated location for a wireless caller. And we do that by sort of triangulation from cell towers and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, actually in, in the places where small cells are going to be developed that potentially Potentially, could give you some more precision there, but what we're still lacking is the detail. If you're in an office building, we can't tell whether you're on the fourth floor or the first floor. Uh, if you're in an office complex and the difference, you know, we may triangulate by towers, but getting within 500 feet in a building that's, you know, basically a big corporate campus um, 500 feet may be too far away if you're in an emergency situation. Right. And that's so, so important because people, I think, are frustrated. They say, well, I have an iPhone and I have apps on my iPhone. Right. I can press a button and the Uber driver comes and they know exactly they where know I am. They know what door I'm standing yeah, at the hotel, like, right? They know exactly where I am. The right. problem is, yes, that technology exists in your cell phone, but our 911 call centers were built in the landline era. They are not equipped to utilize that technology that you have embedded into your phone and find you like Uber can. So that's really the issue here. We're trying to upgrade this technology to make use of the technology that you and I carry in our pockets every single day. Yeah, and I mean, without getting too technical, another piece of this is because of the transition from one phone carrier to scads of them, um, the, the practical matter is the, the 911 call centers used to be able to rely on one big copper-wired trunk run by the company that's now Verizon. Right. And that's the local exchange carrier was the only outfit you had to deal with for incoming calls. So for years, we've been patching wireless calls and all these other forms of, of telecom in through the trunk that's been run by the local exchange carrier. But the government is sort of out of the muscle of compelling the local exchange carrier to maintain that service. Mm -hmm. And if Verizon disappears as the unit provider, the call centers need to be ready to handle stuff coming directly from wireless companies A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, plus the various mom and pops and so forth, and the, the, the cable TV companies who are providing dial tone service and so forth. So um, it's, you know, we, we need to be able to receive the information, whatever form it comes in, whatever company it comes from. That's a big part of what next generation 911 is about. That's not, that's not the exciting part, but if you run a call center for a county government in Maryland, they'll tell you that's one of the challenges that they, you know, they don't know how to get from here to there without some big investments. Right. So speaking of getting from here to there, MAKO definitely encourages efforts to enhance emergency communications in Maryland. And we have developed a proposal in the form of a bill to help guide that transition. I think it's important to mention the Emergency Number Systems Board. They are a great outfit. They work a lot with our local 911 call centers. They invest capital money that the state gets from 
a portion of the 911 fee to upgrade equipment, and they do a fantastic job. Our jurisdictions love working with them, but yeah. a lot of the stuff that we're talking about with NextGen 911 in terms of like staffing and training, that's really not within the, you know, the regulatory confinements of the ENSB. That's not what they're statutorily meant to do. Right. So we need to start looking a bit outside of what they're doing. They're the leader here. We know that they have been working on this for a long time, and they're certainly invested. But there are issues that are outside of their realm that need to be addressed. Yeah, so, so I mean, the, the numbers board is excellent in its lane. And so if you're, you know, if you're Cecil County and you need an upgrade to your system, rather than, you know, pinching pennies with your local 911 fee for six straight years until you save up enough to get a new system, Maryland's program is when we pay a buck a month for our 911 call center on our phone line, what we end up paying is 25 cents of that goes to the state. So this numbers board is sort of the governing body of let's make the capital upgrades from a center place. Mm-hmm. And so they're the ones who would say, okay, Cecil County, you need a million six. We'll do that next year. This year we're doing the one in Prince George's and the one in Allegheny. Next year, Cecil and Harford and Talbot, you're all going to get yours. And we're, we have part of a scheduled rollout so that nothing's obsolete. Everybody's being you know brought along at a reasonable pace. That's a really good way to to split up the responsibilities of big capital investment versus day-to-day operating stuff, which the local fee supports. doesn't cover, but it helps support. Right. doesn't come close to covering. We can talk about that in a second. But so I mentioned that we do have a framework moving forward here. There will be a commission to advance Next Generation 911 across Maryland. That was a MAKO initiative. That bill is going to get all of the people in the room who know the most about 911, not you and right. I, mm-hmm. the people who know the technical aspects, they're going to examine the strategic aspects of the implementation of NextGen in Maryland. And again, they'll work with the ENSB, who will also be at the table working off of their existing efforts and with an emphasis on areas outside of their statutory responsibilities. They're going to study and make recommendations for implementation, technology, funding, governance, and the ongoing statewide deployment of Next Generation 911. They'll submit a report to the General Assembly and to the governor and really make sure that Maryland is equipped to move forward here and that everybody understands what we need to do and that all boats rise here so that you have the same capabilities yeah. in Garrett County as you do in Worcester County and everywhere in between. All right. So that's, I mean, that's the vision that we want. I think it's the vision that Marylanders want. This is an important service. I mean, to some degree... This is an edict coming from the Federal Communications Commission that next-gen deployment and the things that come with it are, you know, are an obligation of local governments across the country. So this isn't something. This isn't something that you know we just we just want fancier toys and we want to go get them. This is a matter of citizens want this. The federal government says go do it. We need to have a plan and having a statewide plan just has to help in a lot of ways. But among them will be subtle things, maybe buying together and doing procurement differently for this next round mm-hmm. could be, you know, could be a new wave of thinking in 911. We've always been, 
you know, there's going to be a Cecil purchase and there's going to be a Hartford purchase. Maybe for these purposes, we need to do a regional purpose and we take Carroll and Hartford and Cecil and we end up with one investment that can serve multiple call centers. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but we have the right people together to help guide that those kind of questions. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, admittedly, most most often our 911 call centers have operated in silos yep. and they haven't really talked to each other. But now with Next Generation 911, They'll be connected to one another. They'll be able to transfer calls to one another. So it certainly makes sense to go out right. and get the best bang for your buck in terms of procurement by buying together and using that as leverage. Yep. So, Michael, we, we talked about the fee not covering our operational costs. There is a quirky fee structure here in Maryland. I know this is an, a subject that you are very passionate about. Oops. And essentially... What we have is we do have a 911 fee. It's $1. So as Michael mentioned earlier, $0.25 goes to the state, $0.75 goes to the local. However, that 911 fee is on a per-bill basis. Per-bill. Per-bill, not per per line. So when we had landlines, that was fine, right? You had a landline, you got one bill. You came with a phone bill. You paid your buck, right? Right. And once again, the laws were written decades ago because – there was such a thing as a phone line, and it came with a phone bill. Exactly. So (laughs) now what we're actually seeing is more devices connected or with the ability to connect to 911, but everybody knows about family plans, right? So, Michael, you get a phone, your family gets a phone, so you have five cell phones now, but you're getting one bill, so you're paying $1 for five devices that are able to connect to 911. So Mm -hmm. the more devices that contact 911 but we're getting less revenue. And that is why with this antiquated structure, by the way, we're the only state in the country that has a per bill fee specified in statute. That is why we have not been able to keep up with these rising costs. At least that's a big portion of why. But I think that needs to be addressed as well. That needs to be looked at. And the commission will certainly look at that. So, that, I mean, that's one of the things on the table, and I guess what this challenge is is stepping back a little bit, but as a matter of policy, there's there's like a, a an age-old question as far as how do you pay for a public service, and the question being, do you do so through general revenues levied on everybody, or do you pay for a service to, to put the responsibility on the users? So like an enterprise fund. Yeah, and the, and the, and the classic... The classic case is something like a park. You, you need to maintain the park and make sure that the parking areas and the grass is mowed and other, you know, that you have the lifeguard or whatever. So you have some operating costs for the park. And one way to pay for the park is whoever comes into the park pays six bucks. Okay, well, that's, that's one way to do it. But if you say, well, we have to pay for the whole park by admissions, then it turns out, well, six bucks won't do it. It's going to be 17 bucks to come to the park. And then what happens is nobody wants to come. Right. So then you end up with nobody paying the freight because nobody attends. And then people are denied the ability to enjoy the park. So that's the inherent tension. It sounds good to say the user should pay. But as a practical matter, do you, you know, where do you place that burden? Um, for, for 911, just about every state has, has arrived at this general idea that the, the users of telecom, the users of devices that can call 911 are effectively the users. We don't bill based on calls. You don't get charged five bucks when you call 911 for, I think, obvious reasons. Right. right? You don't want to depress people's willingness to call in an emergency. Okay, smart. Mm-hmm. But we're left with everybody pays a fee, and it's the users of telecom that, that pay the fee to do this. In general, that makes sense. 
but the connection has been severed in Maryland as we've got, I mean, what about the, you know, the family plan with three people or four people on a pan on one bill? I mean, that's a kind of silly example, but what about the law firm that has 150 associates who all have cell phones? They're all in different places all over the state. Um, seven of them might make a call in a given month, but they pay $1 because right. it's all on one bill. Um, we're totally on an island having our law written that way. It's a quirk, but there is the tyranny of the status quo that makes that a tricky policy issue unto itself. Absolutely it does, but this commission, I'm very confident the right people will be in the room. The smartest people in our state will be looking at this issue, and they're going to come up with the policies moving forward. So lots to look forward to there, very exciting stuff, and we'll keep you updated on Next Generation 911. All right, Michael, that's going to do it for part two of our two-part series on new technology driving new policy. I think we've covered a lot of very interesting policy areas, had really good discussions on some of this new and emerging technology, and hopefully you've enjoyed it. Yeah, we welcome your listener feedback. We're very much like hearing from from people who are listening to this, and if you like it, let us know. If you don't like it, let us know. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather hear what you have on your mind. And if you think that there's another topic out there that's worth a local government flavored deep dive, ring our bell because we're looking. Absolutely. So we will be back next week. We'll get into the news of the week. We'll get back into our normal programming. But we do can we hope to keep doing these deeper dives on particularly interesting policy areas. That'll do it for this episode. Kevin and Michael signing off. We will talk to you soon.